Thanks for joining us on Sling Talks. Adam is joining us today. He's currently the head of product and engineering at a stealth stage vertical AI startup. He has experience as a product manager at a couple of companies, including Microsoft. He also has experience in engineering and investing, and he studied CS and economics at UPenn and Wharton. Did I get all that right? Yes, you did. Beautiful. Do you want to just like jump in by telling us a bit about what you're doing these days? Yeah, absolutely. So it's great to be here. I love the name Sling Talks, by the way. So right now I am doing a couple of different things. One is, of course, I think everyone should be you know, lifelong learners. So I'm doing a lot of self-driven ML learning and exploration right now. I've been really into the tools market, right? Which is part of actually how Daniel and I got to know each other. I'm really into tools for ML engineers, or you know, I guess more broadly, like developers who may not have ML experience, but now everyone needs to have some of that experience. So one thing I'm doing is really into the tools market. I'm also, like Daniel said, right now head of product engineering at a startup that's been around for about two and a half years, and they're pivoting into AI-powered investment due diligence. And so definitely more of the style of diligence that you see in like PE firms, for example, where it's actually right now very human-driven, a lot of back and forth, a lot of manual data analysis, that kind of thing. And so it's one example of, I think, a great timed business where just the tools that are available today right now, like GPT-4, there is an open source fine-tuned version called FinGPT. Like the tooling today is phenomenal so that you can go after use cases really effectively like financial due diligence. So just to ask about financial due diligence, can you just explain quickly what due diligence is? Yeah, absolutely. So due diligence is really the heart of any investment shop's operations. Think about like, let's start from high level, an investment shop. Like, what do they fundamentally do? They've got money. Let's ignore how they got the money. Like they've got the money and they need to deploy that money, right? They need to give that money to somebody so that they can make more money, right? And generally they benchmark themselves on the S&P or really, you know, it's a risk adjusted return. So they have like target returns, you know, for a target amount of risk. And so, okay, like we've got this money, you know, we're an investment shop. How do we go and deploy it? Well, if you go on the street and you say, hey, everyone, I've got money to give you and I just want money back later, everyone's going to take your money and then you're never going to get any money back. So this is like the diligence process. Diligence means I'm an investment firm. I need to thoroughly evaluate the opportunities, the investment opportunities in front of me so that I can make money, basically, right? It's like really not that complicated. And then the do part comes in because if you don't do a good job of diligence, that's considered like negligent because you're probably losing somebody else's money. Yeah. So do diligence is really this combo term of you know, you're probably managing somebody else's money. So you have a responsibility to like thoroughly vet the investment opportunities and try to make the best choices you can. And that's responsibility and effectiveness together. So concretely, you have some process that's going on where uh, the firm decides to make an investment or decides that they might make an investment, they're likely to make an investment. Then they invest a bunch of time into reading through documents, basically, from the company, which could be like employment agreements and like IP agreements, but it also could be just like any documents related to the company's operations to make sure they're legit, to make sure that they're not, you know, scamming anyone, to make sure that their finances are in order, that they have all the contracts that they should have signed. Is that basically it? 100%. Yeah. And like what due diligence concretely looks like depends on the kind of investment you're making, right? Because for example, if you know you and I go on Robinhood and we say, I want to buy Tesla stock, you know, I want to buy $30 of Tesla stock. Like the amount of due diligence really needed for to buy $30 of Tesla stock, you know, I should probably go look at like... Those are also public companies. So there is diligence that's done by the public market. Right. As opposed to in privates. Exactly. And then you look at the style of diligence that's like, you know, let's say like a lower middle market PE firm, which is kind of the, the customer persona I'm serving right now, where they're probably not investing in public. So already you're talking about a process where they need to get more information, right? There's a significant, significant information asymmetry between investor and potential investment. And then you say, okay, these kinds of firms are probably looking to make 
significant equity-based investment into private companies. And so all of them, right, they're all going to have their own niche, right? Some of them say, hey, we're fantastic at investing in real estate plays that are like kind of have factories on top. They can be very specific. Some of them can say, hey, we'll invest in any company that we think the management is terrible because we're really good at putting new management, right? So there are all these different angles. And that kind of like what your investment angle is, like how are you going to make money on this informs your diligence. But the whole point is there's definitely a significant portion of the due diligence processes that involve saying, hey, company that I think I want to invest in, and I'm considering investing in, we're interested, you know, you're interested in getting that investment, we need your data. So can you just tell us for diligence, like in general, is diligence like a one-day process? Are we talking like an hour? Are we talking like a week, a month, a year? No, so it's a great question. Diligence is a pretty extended process. Okay. Like if you define, there's like kind of the this like investment courting period, right? So the company and firm are talking, they're, you know, having some high level, like, you know, does this align kind of conversations. It's similar to like an initial sales call, frankly, you know, a couple, maybe a couple of those calls. And then like, they really get into the heart of due diligence, which is when a company shares all of their data. And, you know, all of their data can be an interesting term because that's not always true, but the company at least shares a significant amount of data. How much are we talking about? Like, I guess, obviously it depends on the stage of company, but is there like, you know, are we talking like a thousand documents, a hundred documents, a million? Yeah, it's usually more in the order of hundreds. Okay. And is it generally documents? I know I keep saying this, but like, is it spreadsheets or like what kind of data are we talking about? Databases? Yeah. So it can really be anything. Again, it's all, I'll make it concrete in a second, but it's all highly dependent on, on what the firm does, right? So for example, let's say, you know, go back to the jeans company. Let's say that I'm an investment firm and, you know, you got Daniel's jeans and I'm looking to maybe invest. So you say, hey, you know, I'm going to send you this data and I'm also going to send you six pairs of jeans, right? Like that's the kind of thing that like may actually make sense. It's like, let's feel the product quality so we can get a sense for what we're buying. So, I mean, you could send products, you could send images of products, right? And then of course, for any business, you would want to send spreadsheets of financials. You'd want to send PDFs and this, you know, uh, slide decks that sort of describe like the operations and the market. So if I understand, there's like a legal dimension here, there's like a finance dimension here, there's like operations, which would be like, it would be a huge hole in the business if you had no one managing like an entire area of your operations. And then there's also, it seems like it's not just on the negative side, it's also on the positive side of like showing off the quality of the product. Yes, absolutely. Right. So the positive side is interesting because... Because my impression, being honest, was I thought diligence was like a purely negative thing of like hire a team of lawyers and say, like I've watched Suits and they're like, go do diligence on this company. I don't know if you've seen Suits where they do this. They're like, go do diligence, get it done and tell us that it's a good investment within a week. And then, you know, like six days in, the person's like, I need to stop you there. This is not a good investment. They have like a massive loan that they forgot to mention, you know, and so don't accept it. Of course, Suits is a great, fantastic show. It's a great show. But it's also a little exaggerated, but I think that actually really encapsulates relationship, right? So the investment firm and the you know potential company, they have this dynamic where the company is trying to get a great deal. They're trying to say, hey, you know, we're worth $200 million. You should give us $5 million, right? Blah, blah, blah. And the investment firm is trying to say they're being sold to in a way. So there's this dynamic where the investment firm, when they get into the donors process, is really trying to kill the deal. And the target company is trying to get the deal to go through, you know, usually, right? Like there are other circumstances, you know, let's say there's like a really highly sought after company that's saying we're open for investment, right? Like there's a different dynamic where investment firms are vying for the deal. But generally, it's an investment firm trying to kill the deal by looking for all the red flags and a company that's trying to sell themselves, which is why companies often hire bankers. And bankers are actually often the gatekeepers of information. And so one thing I find very interesting about the diligence process is that you can eventually get in a situation where investment firm is saying, hey, we want X, Y, and Z more information. And the bankers effectively say, no, <laughs> we won't give you that information. And they obviously do that sparingly because that's 
pretty much a red flag that like, what are they hiding? But you're hitting on something very interesting. Yeah. Within this back and forth process of investment firm gets data, they have people analyzing the data, they are basically trying to kill the deal by finding things wrong with the data. Can I just add, sorry, on the, so in terms of diligence, obviously you're coming from product and engineering. How long have you been thinking about what diligence looks like? Oh, um, it's a good question. Full time, not super long, but I do have a bit of a history in this because... Is diligence a field is really what I'm curious about. Like, is this a field or is this like a new emerging, like, instead of looking at this as like you're an investor and you spend some time on diligence, actually diligence is like a process in and of itself. Like, are there people whose job is diligence or is that more like, you know, what does that look like in practice? So... Diligence is absolutely, I don't know if I would call it, I mean, I guess it is, it's, I call it a subfield of finance, of like any kind of investment, because this different forms of diligence have been happening for forever. I mean, for as long as people have been making investments, giving each other money. So if my job is finance, if my job is to give investments, that means that my job is some of the time to do diligence. Absolutely. Got it. Let anybody that you know that, that works in a PE firm or a search fund or a family office that they make investments, like generally at the lower levels, right? Like analyst associate, even like senior associate levels, their job is basically two things. Their job is sourcing deals and their job is evaluating deals, like which is AKA diligence. Even like you can include VC in that, right? Like kind of the lower ranks of VC firms, like they source deals. And then when there's like maybe a bite on a particular thing, they evaluate the deal. I do know that like with VC firms, for example, they do tend to hire lawyers for diligence though, right? Like they tend not to do it in-house or even consulting firms, I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah. Depending on the resources of the firm conducting this diligence process, they can play this in a lot of ways, right? So less resourced firms will maybe keep all of it in-house and they will say, hey, we've got our junior people, they're going to do all this diligence, like we just, we're going to have to trust them, that's the resources we've got. Yeah. When you get into larger companies, they might say, hey, we've got our junior people, but like the legal stuff, we cannot mess up. We hire an outside legal diligence consulting firm. They come in and they do that, ask for the diligence. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, you can have like highly, highly resourced companies that really just evaluating a ton of deals and they really just want to get the best. Yeah. And maybe all they do is sourcing and they have a brand and they, you know, they have value add after the investment and they just hire somebody completely outside for diligence. Okay, that makes sense. I want to jump onto the AI side. So I'm curious to ask, you're working on diligence right now. Do you see your company as an AI company first and foremost, or more of like an investment diligence kind of company? Yeah, it's a great question. Frankly, I think that right now it's an AI company because that's hot and it's it's easy to market that, right? I mean, and it resonates with our customers, right? There's a significant shift in the you know, financial, like professional financial mindset, which is like, we need to embrace this technology. Longer term, on the real level, it's a vertical SaaS company. It's a due diligence, well, you know, the vision is greater than that, but right now it's a due diligence support product. And the AI part, it's flashy and it makes the product possible today. Yeah. But I think there's also a distinction too in terms of, you know, like kind of the engineer in me wants to come out and say that whether you're really an AI company or you're applying AI as a vertical SaaS company, I think also matters like how much true ML engineering are you doing? Yeah. So today, for example, we're using off-the-shelf products because we're going to in the earlier stages and we're, you know, we're, we're forming design partnerships. And I do see us to... Where, you know, deliver excellent product value, doing a bunch of fine tuning, and we're gathering data sets and you know for all of that. But I don't see this company ever building foundational models, right? I mean, you know, you know, can I predict the future? I like to think I can at least a little bit. But you know, could this company become a real AI company and build foundational models? It's possible. But today, you know, I, I, given all that, I think that it's really more of a vertical SaaS product that, that's taking advantage. Got it. So if I understand. 
you're jumping into this industry and you're saying like, our focus right now will be people don't have these AI features. If we start with the AI features, we can have a competitive advantage or we can have more like an entry to the market, a value add immediately from something other people aren't doing. But in the long run, it could be that 98% of the product or other features, which may be AI or may not be, that really like ultimately you just want to help with this diligence process and you don't super care what the underlying technology is. I don't agree that 98% of it may not be from ML-driven features. Like, could happen, but I think it's actually like the lifeblood of this company is, hey, we are, you know, this technology is available. We can apply it in, in, you know, very practical ways. But the reason I say that I think this company is fundamentally a vertical SaaS company is because the value of the company is driven by understanding our customers, solving their pain points. And at the end of the day, they don't care how it's done. Yeah. Right. Like it's just this kind of rigorous, like old school product management. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say AI, you mentioned it's like flashy. And I imagine. When you say flashy, do you mean that like companies are investing from more of like an experimental budget? Or like what does it mean to you when you say we identify as an AI company, it's flashy, it's what customers like to hear? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that means that it's not necessarily that they're investing from experimental budget, although that does happen sometimes. It's that like they know there's this trend, they know that there's this possibility. And even like when you think about like what does a buyer care about? You know, firms care about beating their competitors. And they also know that other people are starting to adopt this. And so it's like when I say it's an AI company in this way, like it means that we're part of this trend that's hitting different industries where tools are becoming available and they're solving real world problems and they're making, for example, an investment firm. They're in the long run, they're going to juice an investment firm's returns. And these other firms, they don't want to fall behind. Like they want to be better than everyone else. So diligence gives them a competitive advantage because presumably they can close deals faster. Right. So the advantage is right. Like it's because I have heard this, by the way, I've heard a lot of excitement from VCs who say, like, holy shit, if we can close deals even faster, that would give us such a huge competitive advantage. That's usually the language with diligence products that I've heard excitement these days. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are a couple points on the, uh, really what is the value prop to customers? And like you'll know that like none of this actually says we use AI. Like we're cool, we use AI, right? Like the value prop to customers is sounds like that is it a little bit, by the way. Meaning like I do imagine that like, I don't know, Sequoia says like, look, we use AI in our deal flow. It might actually just be a nice thing for Sequoia to show off to companies. That's true. So is that real value though? It might be. I don't know. There's also the element I've heard this from folks that work at public companies, especially that like mentioning AI as a public company raises your stock price and therefore delivers real value to shareholders is the argument. I'm just mentioning it. That's fair. Okay. So well, that you're actually hitting on a topic I want to get to in a second. Sure. Which is sort of hype, hype value. Well, hype, I think it's also like long-term leadership of something that will pan out into real, real user value. So what I wanted to say is like the, you know, without ever using the word ML or AI, the value to our customers right now is go through the diligence process much faster, right? And really, there are two cases to that, right? Like you do invest or you don't invest. And so when you don't invest, right now you can spend three weeks with two people, three people, highly paid, highly educated people going through all this data manually. And after three weeks, they find something and it kills the deal, right? Instead of spending three weeks and $500,000 plus outside fees, all this stuff, we can kill the deal in two days because we find everything, you know, we find the red flags up front and we just, there's a ton of value right there. We just saved you. Got it. And then that's just, you can measure that in dollars. Yeah. Yeah. When there is a competitive deal, you are able to invest much more quickly. So that's kind of the positive side of like speeding up the timeline. And then in all cases, we improve your analysis quality. And so things that you, you know, might have missed. So basically we, we prevent you from making the wrong decision, right? Which if you do invest in something that does have red flags, which is mainly like, so first catch red flags faster and second catch red flags when you might have missed it otherwise. Yes. And then third would be speed up the process, even in a positive case. Exactly. That makes a ton of sense. So I guess I'm curious, you mentioned this as like vertical SaaS for diligence, obviously AI being the angle. I want to ask like, because I think this is a big topic you and I were talking about. Is there a difference between like a vertical SaaS company more generally and like AI native vertical AI companies? Like, would you consider yourselves to be AI native? Yeah, so I think that this is uh, this is something I, right, we talked about this previously, and I think it's very interesting. And like, really, one of the ways to judge this is, I guess there are two dimensions I've been thinking about. 
One is like, how significantly do you change the workflow? And the other is how significantly do you change the type of human labor required? So on the first one, how significantly do you change the workflow? You know, the most far-fetched or, you know, you could say innovative in some ways, AI companies today completely change the workflow. Instead of going, you know, step one, two, three, it's just like, you know, a completely different step one, two, three, or it's just, just step, step one, like you just completely change the work. And in this sense, we are actually purposely not changing the workflow too much. I think that part of why we have started in the place that we have with the use cases we have is that it's actually a very self-contained process. And so, you know, the overall investment diligence process is, you know, steps one, two, three, four, five, six. And we're really just taking step three and shrinking it quite a bit, quite a bit. And then, you know, improving the overall attribution. And is the mentality there to like speed up adoption? Like this fits into your workflow, just get it, just add this one step. Yes, exactly. It is a fantastic place to start a business, I think, because, mm-hmm. and again, there are different ethos to starting a business. There's like, hey, I'm swinging for an absolute home run right now. I'm changing the world or I'm doing nothing, right? There's that ethos. And like, we, we love that ethos. But there's also an ethos of, hey, let's build something right now. And the something right now, you know, maybe it's a smaller business and we can bring that into a bigger business. But like, let's start. And so this business is definitely has more of the mentality of like, let's start. Let's take our next step. And so it's really, really great for immediate adoption to say, Hey, you know, you're getting in bed with a a company that's going to bring you AI features that may one day completely redo your workflows. But for now, use us because we add some value. It's actually very easy to plug in because you don't have to change your process, right? Like we're not even taking the human complaint. We're not significantly changing the human skill and human labor required, which is the other element, right? Yeah. I think that the ethos of this business is let's start with our first step. And so we're not significantly changing the workflow. And nor are we really significantly changing the labor required. So if I understand, I kind of think of, I think of the two dimensions of startups. You can either be in tech, like a horizontal startup or a vertical startup, right? Where horizontal would be something like Google Docs, right? Like we're going to hand you some technology, Google Docs. It doesn't tell you what it's for. It's not like an essay writing tool and it's not like a diligence tool, but you can use it for diligence, right? You can use it for essay writing. You can use it for like note taking. You can use it for collaboration with someone else. There are like a million use cases for it, but it's just like really great technology that literally moves the world forward. And you say, here's Google Docs, do with it as you please for every vertical company, you know, use it in your own way. And then there are more like vertical companies that say, we've thought really deeply about your workflow. So like maybe a contract writing tool, thinking about like Ironclad or something, where they're saying like, sure, Google Docs works for documents more generally, but we've really focused in on your use case and built exactly the right tech stack for you such that you really shouldn't care what bits are there horizontally. You don't care that you know AI is in there. And then I guess when the two points meet, you start with, and I think all startups sort of start this way, with a point solution, right? Where you say like, we are a horizontal tool focused on one vertical. And so we're essentially, for example, the best Google Docs specifically for legals, missing a whole lot of Google Docs features and missing a whole lot of legals features, but for this one piece of your flow, do you think that the way that you guys are starting is as a point solution? And if so, it sounds like you intend to go vertical rather than horizontal. Yeah, totally. I think you're spot on, right? This is a point solution right now. And I think we intend to go more vertical. And, you know, heuristically, I think that, you know, how do you pick whether to go vertical or horizontal is in a visionary way. Do you want to convince your customers to work with you and provide value because you know them super well? Like that probably means you should go vertical. Don't underestimate the value of knowing your customers super well. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Especially if you were coming as a lawyer. Like, I'm curious, does your team have one of the co-founders or multiple that are just like obsessed with diligence? Yeah. So interesting. So one of the interesting, uh, you know, challenges and opportunities of this, this startup right now is that it's pivoting, right? And so the some of the original team is they have background in this, but not like super deep expertise. So it's a hole that we are actively plugging and we're bringing people on who have like deep, deep expertise. And so we actually recently hired two people who have 
deep expertise in the diligence process, like, you know, really, really hands-on. And it's, it's an interesting element of like, hey, let's pivot a startup rather than let's start a new one, right? Because, you know, the ideal team for this to start a new startup is, has a little bit more hands-on expertise with this. And it makes a lot of sense to take someone horizontal. I mean, I know some great companies that were founded by someone horizontal who then hired someone vertical, sometimes as the CEO. Um, maybe like CTO hires the CEO who has very vertical experience. They meet in the middle and that's how they're able to build this really awesome solution for one domain, combining the two. I guess with your kind of technology though, so if I understand, I know we didn't dive deep into the product yet, but if I understand a lot of the tech that you guys are focused on has to do with document reading documents. So in other words, a lot of it is like retrieval augmented generation or mapping GPT prompts over documents. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the beginning. And then running it through a series of analysis steps. Sort of like, right, like kind of the initial document analysis layers is step one. And so, you know, after we iterating on the product, right now we have four analysis steps. And, you know, they all do different things. And we have quite some plans for, you know, more analysis steps that we think will, you know, do X, Y, and Z things that our customers really like. So I'm curious, like, if you were worried about competition or if you're thinking about your key unique selling points, et cetera, or your mode, whatever that might be, would you be more worried about, you know, someone coming in from a more horizontal angle that says we are, you know, like the other rag companies that are just like, we do rack, we do retrieval augmented generation. You don't know what that is because you're a lawyer, but like you should. And then you should try figuring out where you could put retrieval augmented generation, just like if Google Docs were selling and saying you should try Google Docs or Gmail was like you should try Gmail. Or would you be more concerned about more like on the vertical angle of those legals companies saying like we're creating full-fledged legal products and this becomes like a feature? Yeah, so competition is always super important in startups, of course. And, you know, we do have some direct competitors today. I'm also like more getting at like which direction would you be more excited about being honest? Yeah, totally. So I think that it's an interesting question. I think that, first of all, there's just so much land grab opportunity today. Like, we're so, so early. And so if this was, you know, let's say in five years trying to start this company, I think that, you know, you might be worried about the the horizontal coming in and eating your lunch and saying, hey, you know, maybe this generic rag solution, you know, can get us most of the way there and 80% of the way to the analysis and, and that's fine. But I also think that for this particular industry, there's so much tradition, I'll call it. Yeah. There's a lot of strong culture about the way they, people want things done and, you know, recognizing that, like, you know, people have been through the trenches and like, there's just a strong culture. And I think that when you target those kinds of industries, they're even more ripe for vertical SaaS adoption, like targeted vertical SaaS adoption. Because for example, just having something in your product that says, like that really signals like, we know your culture, we understand the workflows. Like even if the workflows don't make logical sense in a you know kind of rigorous technological way. It might still match where you're at. So I want to talk about like what it means. You know, I'm a big fan of this idea of AI native startups. So I kind of want to like connect it back and talk about vertical SaaS. So vertical SaaS is like a really new concept actually. Like there are great vertical SaaS companies, but conceptually like I think the analogy here it's not just about like vertical SaaS. A lot of what we're really talking about is sort of like the business versus consumer products, right? So there is like the most popular email client is Gmail, right? Among consumers and among businesses, it was always Outlook. But these days there's G Suite and that's like way growing in popularity to just say, what if we took the exact consumer product called Gmail? We made like virtually no changes, like most minor adjustments on earth. We wrap it, rebrand it, say it's a business product now. And now you take your consumer product, bring it to work and it just works. I think the other example was I was chatting with someone about in the early days of iPhone BlackBerry intersection, the US government said basically iPhones aren't safe for work. And so there was this conception of like Blackberries work in business and iPhones work for personal purposes. Blackberries are business or, or enterprise and iPhones are consumer. And then one day, like the government was just like, yeah, never mind. You know, iPhones are fine. And the funny part is like, there used to be companies that would give you a work phone, right? They'd give you a BlackBerry. These days, 
a few companies give you an iPhone. I don't know if any give you a BlackBerry. I don't know if there still are Blackberries, but for the most part, almost everyone at like almost every company, like I doubt Google execs necessarily have a separate work phone. They might, but for the most part, they just take their iPhone to work. So the analogy here is like in the tech world, are we in this like weird situation, this weird temporary situation of Blackberries where there is like a ton of vertical AI, you know, where you have these, you know, AIs, you take ChatGPT and you have, there are just so many products that are like ChatGPT for work when really ChatGPT for work maybe is literally just ChatGPT at work, you know, like will we just move in this direction where sentiment changes and it's fine to use ChatGPT at work or does the product actually have to be different and what it means to be ChatGPT at work is one thing and what it means to be a diligence product to analyze documents has nothing to do with ChatGPT at work. Yeah, I really like what you're getting at here. And I think that one, there's a different angle, right? It's like, you know, there's an angle you're talking about, which is great. But I think what you're talking about is actually the pure technologist angle, the pure like product and technologist angle, which is in this hypothetical world, like if there is a better or similar product that's lower cost, you know, people will use it. And that's just simply not the case. Like I would love for that to be the case because I would love to spend my time saying, I'm going to build the best product for this thing in the entire world. And therefore I will be a trillionaire and everyone will love my product and it'll fuck for their That's great. Yeah. What I think is empirically true, and I don't necessarily see this changing in the near future, is businesses build relationships. And so building a business is different than building a fantastic product. Obviously, there's like so much relation there. Right? You can't separate the two if you're building a tech product business. Yeah. But, you know, the point is, you know, we're building today and we're building something that satisfies our customers today. We're building relationships and we're building the business. And let's say in five years, maybe ChatGPT, you know, plus RAG could provide the exact same level of analysis. Like, I don't think that'll be true in five years, but hypothetically, that hypothetically, that's true. Our customers are still going to work with it. Yeah. I mean, there is the matter of timelines. I feel like you are bringing up correctly the matter of timelines of kind of like, yeah. it's sort of like someone saying, imagine if iPhones could take as good photos as like a really expensive camera. Yeah. And then it would be fair in the early days to respond and say, that could happen, but it probably won't happen. And I think today, like, we don't know the timeline. Like, are we on track? So, I mean, especially in the flip phone era, you know, I don't know if selling a camera was disappearing, but it took a long ass time. And there still are DSLRs for sure. So there is that kind of element of like, yeah. if you are a photographer today, you generally still use like a nice camera, you don't use an iPhone. So too, perhaps if you're doing diligence on documents, it's much closer to the photographer thing. You really can't make mistakes. It's really a complicated, long process. You're getting paid a ton of money for this. It's not going to go in the same way as iPhones, right? It's not going to be this super simple, you know, consumer product. And if it is, that could be 30 years away rather than three. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, totally like the behavior psychology of building a business is like, again, it's different than building a product, right? So even like, you know, this hypothetical, like five years, five years is a pretty reasonable timeline. I don't necessarily think that'll be true. But like, hypothetically, you know, this like vertical focus just gets you know completely matched by a horizontal platform like ChatGPT in five years, like the person at our, at our customer firms, they would much rather hit renew on that contract than go through the like procurement on a new contract. I mean, I think that's only true if we don't look at the consumerization, right? Like, because you could say the same thing about the BlackBerry iPhone thing. And I think the counter argument is really just coming down to, is there a product you're already using, especially in your personal life, that can actually solve this use case? So I think like if ChatGPT actually could solve diligence, I would I would totally disagree with you here. I would say if everyone's using ChatGPT in their personal life, if you have your Google Home at home or whatever, your Alexa that's powered by ChatGPT and it's talking to you all day long and you could just say, hey Alexa, go listen to all my, uh, go, go read through all my documents, tell me what you think. Like you're way more likely to do that. The only counter argument I think would have to be that just doesn't work. I actually disagree. I do disagree with you. All right. And I think this is just like the only justification is that we're humans. And because like in that world, right, like five years from now, the products behave the exact same. You've been using one, but you use ChatGPT at home. It's like, why not just use ChatGPT at work? In a hypothetical world, like people should go and use ChatGPT at work. 
But I think that there's just so many examples in the real world that that's not how this happens. And again, like I could not agree more that from a, you know, like the engineering perspective, like that should happen, but it doesn't. And I will say that like, if you're this business and you could be replaced by the horizontal, you're on a limited time frame. But I think that there is like significantly more lag than people realize in terms of like businesses changing. And if you're in that position, you should probably go innovate and do something new or, you know, find new value to add, et cetera, et cetera. But I, you're just saying there would be lagging adoption such that if people already adopted some previous technology, even if they could replace it, they won't. I think you're totally right. I just think like on the consumer angle is where I'm going to disagree, which is to say that like the biggest companies are consumer companies. And that makes sense, right? If I'm using like when I communicate, I use Slack. It's true. Slack is like my communication tool at work, but I still definitely use like phone calls and WhatsApp and stuff like that at work too. Like I still definitely have my consumer side that I'm already using for consumer purposes spill over because exactly the same comment about the human thing. Workers are humans, right? Like executives are humans. If they're using a consumer technology at home and it solves a business problem, they're way more likely to want to move the consumer technology to the business domain than to ever go in the opposite direction, right? Adopt business technology and have like a second tool when I could just remove one. Yeah. Oh, I certainly agree with that. I think the desire will be there. But let's just say that, like, to formalize this, like, yeah. at the point in which, you know, the consumer version is capable of doing what the enterprise version does, yes, the enterprise version or the, you know, the different enterprise product like, is now on a timer. But I just think that, like, the, the timer is really significantly longer than people realize. I just think, like, that's, I don't know how exciting that is to me, because there's also the time it takes for businesses to adopt it all. I think the more exciting angle to me or like more what I would expect. And I, like I was saying, I'm a big fan of AI native startups. And to me, an AI native startup means go back to an industry, any industry, any vertical and like reevaluate it from the ground up and say, like, what are the fundamental inefficiencies? What is like ridiculous about this field that has always been ridiculous about this field? So like you can imagine to me, like Uber. It wasn't necessarily AI native, but it definitely was algorithm native. It said like, it is ridiculous that an algorithm is not the god in the field of ride sharing. And so it basically just like now delegates to humans. It changes the dynamic of like, there are a bunch of cab drivers in the city, each of them work for themselves. And it changes it to like, no, there's one algorithm. You're going to get a ride from this algorithm. It will delegate to humans who act increasingly robotic, right? And you can imagine what happens when every field moves in this Uberish direction, especially now that AI can become the fundamental algorithm, like Open Door. What if Open Door becomes this AI native, like the way that you buy and sell houses becomes completely AI driven. Your price is set by AI, you sell to AI, you buy from AI. And that's kind of the where I would wonder, like, is there that world where diligence isn't just a matter of like one extra tool, which could be horizontal or vertical, who cares? But it becomes this fundamentally reinvented field where you do increasingly outsource or you do increasingly work for the AI. And the AI says, I read through the documents. Here's your table of contents. How long do you have? You have a week? Okay, I'm going to make a plan for one week for you and I to work together. And I'm going to tell you what to do. And you look increasingly like a robot working for me because I'm the one doing diligence and you're just helping me out. Yeah. And that part is very nicely into something that I kind of been wanting to bring up, which is, you know, I'm actually, I'm going to go back to something I said earlier. I said that like saying your AI startup doesn't really provide value. I think it does a little bit because something that where people are looking for right now is, hey, we've got this huge trend. We know there's just so much innovation that's going to happen in this area. We know that our workflows are going to become AI native, right? I think that people kind of know that. Well, some people know that at least. We certainly know that. Workflows are going to become AI native. They're going to be like redone, right? And people are looking for leaders and partners. Yeah, that they already trust. Generally in the form of companies they can work with that say, hey, you know, 
I'm a PE firm. I know that I'm going to become, you know, an AI native PE firm in the next 10 years. I don't want to worry about that. I'm working with, you know, the company I'm working with right now because you guys are going to stay on top of this. You guys. Exactly. And I think this is why I like you, by the way. And this is why I like what you're doing. And I think it's because the angle of being a vertical startup to say, like, you can't jump to being AI native if the AI is not ready. And realistically, it's not yet. And that's kind of the angle of like, if we want to go horizontal, we need to rely on technology, which probably doesn't exist. And so starting that horizontal startup today might be insanely hard because retrieval augmented generation is like cute, but it might disappear in six months. It might not be the future. It's just, it's very hyped up right now, but it might or might not be the future. Investing in RAG means the minute that RAG is no longer the thing, your startup is dead. Exactly. If you invest in saying diligence, you're saying like, I'm going to develop relationships with people who want to stay on the cutting edge. And the truth is, mentioning AI is actually like important here because what I'm telling them is, partner with me and I'll keep you up to date because that's not your job. Your job is to make investments. I'm going to focus on diligence. Yeah. And I think that that's, going back to what we were saying earlier, like what's a vertical SaaS company today that uses AI versus an AI company? And to me, the heart of that is like, how committed are you to being in the forefront, right? Yes. And I'll be honest with you, like the standard, just from a technological perspective, like a cost and a value perspective for like how diligence is done today, there's so much opportunity to improve it because it's just humans parsing through data. Like as an engineer, you hear, I have a bunch of humans parsing through completely unstructured data. It's differently formatted every time. There might be data, there might not be there. You're like, oh my God, like, please let me automate some of this, right? Yes, exactly. And there's just so much value to provide today that the company I'm working with right now, they don't necessarily have to stay on the forefront to provide a ton of value. Like the technology is literally available today can provide so much value. Yeah. It's fantastic if they stay on the forefront and be really be an AI company, right? But like, I guess some of the signs I look for and like, what is like a really hotshot AI company is like, do they have an in-house research team, right? Like you don't have to, but these are just some sick. So they have an in-house research team. Like how just to show we are committed to staying on the forefront. So I have so many more questions I'd love to talk about, but we do have to wrap up. So let me just ask one last question on that. How do you like to stay up to date with AI? Do you have any reading recommendations or podcasts or, you know? Yeah, so I mean, I can give a specific recommendation, but the number one thing I think is that there's so much noise and it's really important to be friends, basically, with, you know, talk to your friends who are doing work on the forefront. Right. Like we all know somebody who reads a million articles every day and a million newsletters. And like, don't get me wrong, I like newsletters, but what matters more is the practice ultimately. And it's just really important to this kind of working on the forefront, not just following the forefront, like working on the forefront, like saying, Hey, here's a new method. Maybe I can try that. Or, you know, I read this new paper and I actually have thoughts about it. So, you know, the two newsletters are called are TLDR AI and latent space. But if you really want to stay in the forefront, you got to be living the forefront. Totally agree. Awesome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciated having you. Let's see how things pan out. And I'd love to maybe catch up in six months and see if all your predictions have come true. If you actually can't tell the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.